Uh, well, we're in our, our series here dealing with marriage and the family, God's design for the family and for marriage, and I've heard a lot of good things about this. I think hopefully I, I pray that it's practical. I know it is in my own life as I study this. I'm always reminded of how far, far short I fall in my daily dealings um, in marriage and with kids and all that, and, and so it's good to remind ourselves sometimes that um, in areas where we need that kind of reminding. Well, a lot of times today in our culture, uh, we hear this question a lot. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? And I think that in our world, a lot of times we're, we're prone to trust uh, what they call experts in different fields of study, just because that's the title they're given. Um, And they're always providing some kind of advice when you stop and think about it. They have a variety of topics, usually. Um, A lot of times, their advice is conflicting. The experts don't agree. (laughs) And so, constantly on our minds should be who are we going to trust with advice when it comes to life issues? Uh, We're left to make a decision between, a lot of times, two pieces of conflicting advice. You remember when they had the pyramid, the food pyramid or whatever? Well, that thing's gotten totally reworked ever since the experts came up with that originally. And then you hear experts once in a while, well, don't drink any coffee, it's not good for you. And then you care a couple days later, a couple weeks later, wow, experts say it's great for you to have a cup of coffee every day. So, you know, you don't know who to believe. And, you know, all this advice on different things, really, um, a lot of time it's foolhardy to, to follow that. But I want you to know this morning, the only prescription, the only place where we can go for timeless, um, clearly true advice that is going to live on for all eternity, mind you, it's never going to change. It's forever settled in heaven. That advice has to come from this book, the Bible, the Word of God. And so when you ask the question, who are you going to trust about family or about marriage advice? Who are you going to trust about the roles in marriage? Now, as we continue our look today at the biblical view of the wife's role in marriage... I guarantee you, as we did last week, you're going to hear some things that will completely be out of step with the experts of our culture. It's just going to conflict. And so you're going to be forced with a decision. You're going to be forced to either listen to those experts or listen to what God's Word has to say. Are you going to believe what the passage today, we're going to be in Titus 2, so you can turn there to Titus 2. Are you going to believe what Titus... The letter there, Paul writes to Titus what it says and what it sets forth. Are you, are you going to trust that or are you going to trust instead the experts who are constantly changing their advice of this world? Or worse yet, are you going to trust yourself, which is not a good scenario either. Um, so today, I want to call upon you as we come to the Word of God to take the word of our creator, the one who created marriage, mind you, 
as the final standard of what marriage and family should be. Now, if you do this as a Christian, I guarantee you, you'll be hopelessly out of step with what the culture says marriage should be. So just get ready. Um, That's just a matter of fact. Now, last Sunday, we began to examine the role of the wife in marriage and we want to finish that up today, and then you're going to get, we're going to get our dose uh, next week, and then come the kids. But today we're looking at the wives' responsibilities. And as I said last week, there's two passages in the New Testament that directly speak to this. One is in Ephesians chapter 5. We looked at that last week, and today we're going to be in Titus chapter 2. And more than any other New Testament passage, those two lay out precisely the primary duties and really the delights of a godly wife. And so we started last week, if you recall, in Ephesians chapter 5, and we found the first one, the first uh, duty or delight of a godly wife is one of submission, the primary duty Delight of a godly wife is submission. Now, that's not a popular word in our culture today, especially even when it comes to marriage. Um, it contradicts what the experts of our times are saying. But that's what God describes. And I encourage you, if you, if you weren't here last week, to get that message. You can get it through the app, um, the church app, or online, and listen to that because it's really foundational to what we're going to be saying today. As well, we don't have time to go through everything, obviously, that we did last week. But the Christian's wife's next great duty and delight is found in the other classic New Testament passage in Titus 2. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, Titus chapter 2. Now, remember, this book of Titus, it was written, uh, it's called a pastoral epistle because it was written to a pastor. That's why it's called a pastoral epistle. And it was written to a pastor who was Titus of the church. And um, to give you a little background on it, Paul had left Titus on the Isle of Crete in order to set some things straight in order in the church in, in, in that area. And Paul's great concern for the church in Crete wasn't so much their doctrine. They had that right. Um. They had some issues that needed correcting, though, as all churches do. But doctrine wasn't the primary issue. They seemed to believe in all the right things. The problem in Crete was the same problem that really exists in our culture today. That somehow there was a disconnect between what they believed, their doctrine, and what they did, their practice. A big disconnect. And so the theme of this brief letter to Titus is adorning the, the, the doctrine of God, is putting the gospel, you believe, in the right kind of order to believe. Well, you see the problem introduced in chapter 1, verse 16 of Titus. Chapter 1, verse 16 of Titus, if you just turn there. He says very clearly here, He says, they profess to know God, but what? They deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient 
unfit for any good work. Now, that's a pretty clear condemnation of some folks. He had already spoken about the fact that there are false teachers in verse 14 who are really spouting off and saying different Jewish myths and commandments of men. He says they're always turning away from the truth. They're not turning to the truth. And so verse 16, he finally gets to their behavior, and here's the problem. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. And that's a very significant problem even in our churches today. There's a disconnect between what people say they believe and how they live. Their actions, he calls them detestable. He calls them disobedient. He says they're worthless for any good deed. And so Paul begins in that context in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, with this very uh, direct, intensive directive to Titus. He says, Titus, as for you, look at what he says, for you teach what accords with sound doctrine. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. You know, sometimes it's easy to grow weary when you're teaching sound doctrine. Because a lot of times, sound doctrine isn't what people want to hear. (laughs) They want to hear things the Bible says that, what, tickle their ears. And so a lot of times, you can be tempted, even as a pastor, to want to kind of compromise a little bit, make things a little more lighter, and get away from the doctrinal things so more people would... Well, that's not our role. That's not what we're called to do. And so he begins giving this practical advice, and he starts in verse 2. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. In other words, older men are to embrace the right doctrine, but they have to live their lives out in a way that adorns that doctrine that they say they believe. So that they can put it on display as beautiful and life-transforming. And then finally, he gets to the women here, and this is where our message will be focused on today. He says in verse 3, he says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Teaching, they are to teach what is good, he says. Older women have a commanded responsibility to teach younger women. That's not an option. It's just not. That's what we're called to do. That's what you're called to do as an older woman, to find someone who is not as old as you and take them under your wing spiritually and teach them what is good. Now, God has carefully told us what the women's role should be as far as teaching in the church. Very clear. 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul says, In the church I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now what does that mean in 1 Timothy 2.12? Scripture does allow, and in fact it demands, that gifted women use their gifts and their experience to teach other women and children. That goes without saying. Whether it's publicly, whether it's privately, one-on-one, whatever. And so Paul tells Titus here to instruct the older women to teach the younger women within the body of Christ. You say, well, 
I see a problem here, Steve. Who are these older women? <laughs> Who are the older women? Well, I don't know about you, but I've never met a woman who wanted to be classified in that category. <laughs> oh, you're one of those older women. <laughs> uh, that's just not the way it works. Um, so you have to be careful how you approach this. But it, it, it's very clear that he's speaking to women with some experience. But nobody likes to be put in that category as an older woman. Well, in biblical times, basically, you could say anything over 60 is an older woman. Anyone over 60 is considered an older woman. He doesn't give us a specific age by what he means here as older women, but he does give us a hint in, in 1 Timothy 5.9 because there he's talking about putting widows on the list to be supported by the church. And if they meet certain qualifications, and one of those qualifications is that they have to be at least 60 years of age. So it may be that that serves as a definition for an older woman. It makes sense if you think about it because childbearing age ends around 40, and that means childrearing ends around 60, usually. And that may frame what he's speaking of here as older women. But we don't want to get focused on a number. So you could just say maybe it's 60 and above. So if you're 60 uh, and below, there's good news. You're a younger woman. <laughs> you're considered a younger woman. See, I had to get some good news out of that somewhere. Now, notice what exactly the older women are to teach the younger women. And this is really the heart of our, our passage here. Um, what exactly are those who are experienced in the Lord in the faith and in life, what are they supposed to teach these younger women? Well, it tells us here in Titus chapter 3, or 2, verses 3 and 5. 3 and 5. It says there to teach older women likewise be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So he tells us pretty clearly what these older women are to be imparting into the younger women. And this is really a foundational passage, um, ladies, for what you're to be about. This is what you should be focusing on as a Christian wife, as a Christian woman. Um, William Hendricks writes this, Titus Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 represent the most succinct summary of a woman's role in all of Scripture. This divines the term helper from Genesis 2 in clear and specific terms. A core role is not everything a woman does in marriage. She is not confined only to what Paul describes here, but she dare not excuse herself from these responsibilities or neglect them for her own ambitions. Like 
The planets revolve around the sun. Everything in her marriage should revolve around these crucial core role responsibilities and concerns. So this is absolutely fundamental to women in Christ, to women in the church. And really, there's, there's something here for everyone this morning because older women are obviously first to model these qualities and they're to actively teach them to the younger women. The commands themselves are, to, are addressed to the young wives. That's because, of course, it's in the ancient culture, the most common circumstance in which a young woman would find herself would be, a, be a, being a young wife. And so one of these qualities in this passage is only for mothers, that they love their children. And several of the qualities are applicable to every woman, regardless whether you're married or not. And even men are affected because one of the qualities in this passage is given as a quality that we're to pursue as well. And we'll look at that next week. So there's something here for all of us this morning. Well, let's look, first of all, in verse 4. It encourages, it begins with the older women that they are to teach for the purpose that they may encourage the young women. The word there translated for encouragement means to bring someone to his senses. They're to be sensible. That's really the, the idea here. Um, it was used in the secular world to bring someone back to his or her duty. Older women really have a responsibility, beloved, to help younger women who need to think more soundly about their duties before the Lord and in marriage. Now, he mentions a couple things here. This gives us our second great duty and delight of a wife. He found, we found last week, the first one was submission, as I said, in Ephesians 5. But really, the, the second great duty of a, um, a godly wife is that of love. 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 And when you stop and, and, and think about the idea of uh, loving, you know, experts will tell you all sorts of things. You can, you can find uh, things all over the map when it comes to that. What does, it, what does it mean? See, the godly wife, first of all, has to express her love specifically, what's it say? Notice, to her husband. And they have to be taught to do that. It doesn't just happen naturally. It's not uncommon in counseling. A lot of times you hear women say this a lot, actually. They'll say something like, well, you know what? I, I just don't love my husband anymore. Now, that's sad, first of all, that they would come to that conclusion. But to be honest with you, some men make it pretty hard for their, their wives to love them. Uh, but oftentimes, people come into marriage, and they exist in marriage today with a horrible, deficient idea of what love is. It's definitely not a biblical view of what love is. A lot of people today in our culture think that love has something to do with some romantic feeling that hits you the first time, ladies, you see Mr. Wonderful in a crowded room. 
Um, you know, others really think as love is just having their own needs met. They love because someone is meeting their needs, so they love them. But I, I want to tell you this morning, true love is not natural. Biblical love does not come naturally. In fact, it's pretty shocking when you come to Galatians chapter 5 and Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Guess what the first aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is? What's he say? It's love. It's something the Spirit works out in our lives. We don't just come up with this. It's not natural. It's supernatural. And so the, the reason is because true biblical love is the opposite of the human nature. You can't just find that within yourself. Because true love is what? It's self-sacrificing. That doesn't come naturally. We're prone to be selfish creatures across the board. But loving, biblical love at its core, is about giving sacrificially of yourself. You remember that great passage in John 3, for God what? So loved the world that he what? That he gave. Okay, that is really the essence of love. It's, it's a giving of, it's a sacrifice. Galatians 2.20, Paul says this, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and what? And therefore gave himself up for me. We just went through communion. We celebrated the fact that Christ gave himself up for us. You see, love begins with giving of yourselves to meet the needs of the one you're loving. We'll finally, eventually, get to 1 Corinthians 13 in our study through Corinthians. In that great love chapter, the one thing it says about love is love does not seek what? Its own. It doesn't seek its own. See, love isn't out for what we can get. And yet, that's how a lot of couples live their marriages. It's for what they get out of it, for what they want. And when they stop getting what they want, they feel the relationship's over. Look over at Philippians chapter 2. I think it's important that we just take a couple seconds here because it's such a, a clear passage on this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. He's saying here, basically, I want you to be of the same mind, make your joy complete. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not out for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the kind of love that we should have within ourselves when it comes to our spouses, when it comes to our marital relationship. John MacArthur says this in his commentary on Titus. He says, training yourself to love involves doing loving things for the other person whether or not you feel like doing them. It involves putting their interests and welfare above your own. It involves sacrificial giving of yourself to others for their sakes. 
not for the sake of appreciation or return love or favor. When you sacrificially serve others, it becomes almost impossible not to love them, he says. Where there is genuine practical love, genuine emotional love is sure to follow. So you want to train yourself to love your husband. Well, start by sacrificing your needs to his. Go back to Titus. And men are called to do the same thing, by the way, and we'll get to that next week, lest you feel it just all falls on the women. And so a godly wife finds it her duty and her, her delight really to love, first of all, her husband. But also, not just her husband, it says, but also to love her children, to encourage them, to bring them to the senses of loving their children. If you've ever seen a mother with a newborn child, you just think, well, that's just a, it's a natural for that mother to love that child. She doesn't have to be taught that. So why does Paul say this? Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he writes this, but realize this, that in the last days, which of course are the days in which we live, difficult times will come. That word difficult times is an interesting word. It's translated in the Gospels in the account of the demonic as savage. So literally, realizing in the last days, savage times will come. For men will be what? What's it say? Lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, he says in verse 3. It's a Greek word that literally means to be without normal family affection. They have no love left for their family, for the people that they're related to, that they ought to be loving and caring for. Why? Because they've used it all up on themselves, on money, stuff. That's what they love. See, that's the serious problem of the culture in which we live. The enemy of that kind of love of children, that's described in Titus chapter 2. Even in Romans chapter 1, verse 31, you find the same word, unloving, there. And it's, it's to describe all of fallen humanity. It's not just men that have this problem. Everybody does. All of fallen humanity is by nature unloving. We're all naturally selfish. We're concerned only about ourselves. So to love your, your husband's ladies, or in this case, your children, it's really the opposite of who you are, naturally. It doesn't just come natural. It's the opposite of that. You know, you may be simply tempted to put yourself or your own desires before your children. There's a myriad of modern manifestations of sin, of being unloving, of lacking in this natural family affection. But I think two of the most common ones are, first of all, pursuing a selfish 
divorce, pursuing a selfish divorce out of your marital vows. You know, there's a lot of people today who, because of their own desires, because they're sick and tired of the circumstances that they find themselves in their, in their marriage, without any biblical warrant at all, they opt out of the marriage. Why? Because that's what they want. And without regard to the fact that the kids are going to be thrown back and forth between two different homes, try to keep up with them, that's not loving at all. So divorce plays an issue here. But secondly, pursuing a career at the expense of your children also is an issue for young mothers. Remember, we're speaking of young mothers here. Donald Guthrie put it this way, even our modern age is not without instances of Christian women lacking true maternal affection. For women who put their careers before the welfare of their own children are displaying a significant symptom of this weakness. See, we have to understand unselfishly loving your children doesn't come naturally. You need to learn it. You need to be taught it. It's hard. It's difficult. Carol Mahaney said it this way in her book, Feminine Appeal. In the career of motherhood, there are no weekends off, no paid vacations, no bonuses or yearly raises, and no quitting time. It's, it is just day in, day out giving. There are times when we feel we do not have another ounce of energy left to offer. At that moment, we have a choice. We can either resent the challenges and the demands that accompany motherhood and persist in our own selfishness, or we can draw from God's grace and receive his help to cheerfully lay down our lives for our children. See, the Bible tells us, older women, you're to teach the younger women to unselfishly, sacrificially love their children. It's not easy. Nobody said it was easy. Sometimes it's not convenient, especially in the economy of the Bay Area. What doesn't come out of the English text in that in both of these expressions in Greek, the ones that are translated love their husbands and love their children both, both of those things are adjectives. They're not verbs. They're adjectives. Literally, the text says this, encourage the younger women to be husband lovers and to be children lovers. In other words, this isn't something that should just be an occasional action or a convenient attitude. This is what you should strive to be known for. Let me ask you, wives, does anyone ever look at you and say, wow, there's a husband lover or there's a child lover? That's what you're to be known for. God says this is one of the the duties, the delights of a godly Christian wife. Not only submission, but also love. A love for both her husband and her children. Well, quickly, let's move on to the third delight of a godly wife. It's found there in verse 5. And it's sensibility. Sensibility. 
It says, teach them to be sensible. To be self-controlled is the word. I mean, it's very hard to overestimate the value of this virtue. In chapter 1 of Titus, verse 8, Paul tells Titus, you know who has to have this virtue? is elders in the church. That's the level of importance we're talking. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says older men are supposed to have that virtue. Here in verse 5, we're learning that older women need to have it so they can teach the younger women self-control, sensibility. And then in verse 6, it says young men are also to have this quality. So it, it, it goes across the board. This one is for everyone here this morning. It's an essential quality of a Christ follower. It's to be the goal of every period of the Christian life for both men and women. It's even a requirement to serve in leadership within the church. Well, what does it mean here to be self-controlled or sensible? It literally means to be sound of mind. One lexicon, lex, lexicon gives it this definition, having the ability to curb desires and impulses so as to produce a measured and orderly life. I like that. Having the ability to curb desires and impulses so as to produce a measured and orderly life. Because a sensible or self-controlled person is one whose mind rules over their emotions, rules over their passions. They have self-control. They're sensible. Now we live in a culture, of course, that no one has self-control anymore. I think our culture can be described by Proverbs 25, 28. Someone would show this to our president. It says, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. What a powerful, what a powerful image that is. A city without walls where, no one, where anyone can come and go and wreak any damage they choose. It describes the human soul that has no self-control, is not sensible. Because anyone can reach into that life and turn a button, and they lose control. It's a, like a city without walls. We see that all over the place. Whether it's at Little League games where parents fly off the handle and get in a fight right in front of their children. I read of one squabble between a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old. And the 15-year-old was an umpire in a game. And these two kids were standing in line at the snack bar. And the 13-year-old had just had a bad game in his pitching. He lost the game. And the 15-year-old started to mock him and make fun of him. And the 13-year-old at first... He took his bat and he hit him in the legs and he lost control and he ended up crushing his skull with his bat. Killed him right there on the spot. Lack of self-control. Well, how do you get this essential quality? Well, the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes to Timothy, 
his son in the faith in verse 7 of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but he has given us the spirit of power and love and discipline. There's our word, self-control, the ability to discipline ourselves. God's given that to us. It's an act of his grace. As a matter of fact, even in Galatians chapter 5, part of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. That's a synonym for the the word sensible. God gives his, his own people this ability. But that doesn't mean that we're perfect at it. We all lose self-control at times. And so back in Titus chapter 2, he tells us the older women are to teach the younger women how to develop this skill, this virtue, this quality. I find the older you get, a lot of times the more self-control you have. Things that, were, that would just drive you batty when you were younger and push you over the edge. Now you can just kind of go, eh, whatever. doesn't bother you as much. Well, you've learned how to have some self-control. doesn't mean it's perfect. None of us are. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, Peter says, The end of all things is near, therefore be of what? Sound judgment. Literally, he says, be self-controlled. That's what he's saying. Think rightly. Have your mind in charge, not your circumstances. Paul gives us a little more clue how this can be done in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. He says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath or crown, we an imperishable. Therefore, Paul says, I run in such a way as without, not without aim. I box in such a way, not beating the air. Why? Because he disciplines, that's the word, his body and makes it his slave. See, self-control and control of passions is, is the same kind of control that the athlete uses in order to get that crown. You have to have that. That should be one of your qualities as a wife. If you want to be a, a godly wife who honors God, by God's grace, you have to exercise self-control in every area of your life. You can only do that through the Spirit's power. Be sensible. Be governed by your mind and not by your emotions or your passions. Well, fourthly, a next duty or delight of a godly wife, he says there in Titus, he says, is to be pure. He says, teach them to be pure. Now, this is very straightforward. It's obviously a reference to moral purity. And in our culture today, you know, it used to be, well, the husband was the one that would more than likely mess up in this area. But anymore in our culture today, it's almost equally accepted that women are the ones that fall by the wayside in this area in a marriage. The Wall Street Journal had an article where they had a report that talked about the rising number of women having extramarital affairs. In 1991, one in 10 women admitted to an adulterous relationship. A little over 10 years later, in 2002, that number had increased from 10, or from 1 in 10 to 1 in 6. Uh, the same number as men, by the way. 
The same article in the Wall Street Journal attributed the rise of this pattern among women to the fact that they're out in the workplace and they're exposed more to temptation. See, whether you are at home or whether you're out in the workplace, you owe your husband, ladies, according to God, a pure mind and a pure body. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, that's a picture that Paul gives us of the word pure. He's defending his apostleship there. And in verse 2, he uses the word in an interesting way. He says, I wish, or excuse me, he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. There's the word pure. It describes the moral purity of a virgin bride. Ladies, you're to be pure in your marital relationships. Now, for some, that's not the story of their past. Maybe your marriage didn't begin to characterize purity. Well, that's where God says you need to repent. You need to repent of that sin before the Lord, seek his forgiveness, and God will forgive you. And you determine from this point forward, you know what, I'm going to be pure in my relationship within the confines of my marriage. Well, how do you stay pure in a world like ours? Um, there's one very practical way that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. He says, here's how you, you stay pure. 1 Corinthians 7, 2. We'll be getting to this one. We go through Corinthians to this part as well. He says, verse, verse 2, because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. The husband must fulfill this duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And then he gives this very practical, straightforward advice on how to stay pure. He says, stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's dealing with relations within a marriage. To stay sexually pure, that's one of the aspects of marriage. God expects that of a Christian wife to keep themselves pure in mind and in body. Well, the fifth duty of a Christian wife, back in Titus 2, is that she should be a worker at home. Now, with each one of these, I feel we're getting <laughs> more worked up, okay? I mean, if you said this out in the outside, you'd probably get in big trouble, but that's what the Bible says. I mean, he says it right there, worker at home. That's what they're taught, to be taught, young women, um, Robert Bork, he wrote a book entitled Slouching Towards Gomorrah. <laughs> and in his book, he quotes a, a renowned feminist, a radical feminist. And here's what she said. She says, no woman should be authorized to stay at home and raise her children. Society should be different. 
women should not have that choice, precisely because if there is such a choice, too many women will make that one. (laughs) I mean, I thought the women's movement was all about choice, but apparently not when it comes to this lady. Um, So what does he mean here when he says this command is really, this is what they're taught to do, to be a worker at home? Why is it so repulsive to some? Even professing Christians. I mean, I've heard people say, well, this can't be God's expectation for all wives at all times. Well, you know, they say it has to be something cultural. It has to do with some kind of circumstance that was going on in Crete. See, this command is surrounded by other qualities and virtues that are clearly timeless. They're not cultural. It's not cultural or time-restrained to love your wife or to be submissive to your wife or anything like that. So if it's for today's women, it's for tomorrow's women as well. Well, what does it mean to be a worker at home? What does that exactly mean? Does that mean the wife should be barefoot and pregnant 24-7? Is that what he's saying? No. That's not what he's saying at all. The Greek word really is a compound word made up of two Greek words, the word for house and the word for work. Go figure, right? Worker at home, a house worker. Now, there's two basic instructions here to this expression. First of all, it means that you should be focused on your home, ladies. Doesn't mean you have to be barefoot and pregnant, like I said all the time. It doesn't say that a wife should never leave her home. It doesn't mean that there aren't circumstances when a husband and a wife will will choose for the wife to work outside the home. There are even some godly women and mothers who are forced by tragic circumstances to work outside the home. But what does this say? A godly Christian wife will delight on focusing her thoughts and her energies and her activities on her home. That's what it says. And we're not talking just the physical structure in which she lives. This isn't, you know, the idea of being a glorified housekeeper. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. This is your household. This is your family. All things pertaining to the household in which you dwell and live. It primarily, it means focusing your life on your husband. Remember what Moses said back in Genesis 2. God created Eve as a what? Helpmate, a helper to Adam. And so that help is defined very practically. You're to be a worker at home. Now that's very unpopular <laughs> in our culture today. It's completely unpopular. But you know what? A lot of children, some statistics say two of every three children between three and five years of age spend most of their day in daycare. Are you known, ladies, as a worker at home? Whatever else you have to be involved in, Are you described by, can you be genuinely be characterized as a home worker? I said worker, not wrecker. Home worker. (laughs) Whatever else you may be involved in, 
Can you genuinely be described as that? Now, the other basic point that grows out of the expression is not only that to some degree you need to be home and you need to be focused on the needs of the home, but also you should be productive as well. It doesn't mean simply being home, that's what God requires. As long as I don't leave the home, I guess I'm sitting here and watch TV all days. No, that's not what, that's not what you're called to do. Uh, it says that you should be a hard worker. Remember, the other half of that word is work, home, worker. I mean, some Christian wives, they think because their husband allows them to stay home, uh, that they met this qualification. Well, I, I stay home all day. But their lives are not marked by work. They're marked by laziness. And so we have to stop and we have to say, wait a minute, is that honoring to the Lord? In 1 Timothy 5, Paul fills this in even more. In verse, verse 11, he says, I don't want you to put younger widows on the list for the support of the church. Why? Because when they feel sensual desires and disregard Christ, they may want to get married. In verse 14, he says, I want the younger widows to get married, to bear children, and to keep house. That's what God's word says. That word translation there, keep house, that means doesn't mean just to clean your house. That's not what it's talking about. It means to be a house despot. It means to be, it's used in other contexts in the, in the New Testament. In wealthy homes, there was a man who would serve in this role. And they would basically run everything that had to do with the house. Everything that had to do with the household, the family, and all the enterprises of the family. That's what a house despot does. They rule, they manage the household. And that's what it means to be a worker at home. It doesn't just mean you do the dishes. It means that you're doing vast amounts of work dealing with your household. Martin Luther, the reformer, said this. He says, In domestic affairs, I defer to Katie, his wife. Otherwise, I am led by the Spirit. (laughs) And that's exactly right. I mean, the idea of being a worker at home is depicted for us in Proverbs 31. We don't have time to go through all of that. But in verse 27, it says, She looks well to the ways of her household. In verse 27, it says, She does not eat the bread of idleness. She's busy. She's productive. She's a worker at home. And then finally here quickly, the final duty of a godly Christian wife is found back in Titus. Teach them to be kind. Teach them to be kind. I mean, when you look at the passage here in Titus, it's interesting because it seems like these qualities are in twos. The first group is love your husbands, love your children. The second group is be sensible and also be pure. The third group is to be workers at home and to be kind. You say, well, why would God pair kindness with being a worker at home? Well, Hendrickson comments this. He says the two virtues quite obviously are related. Now, while performing their task in the family, these young women must take care that the constant strain of domestic duties does not make them irritable or cruel. I'm sure, ladies, sometimes you've been tempted to be both of those things. 
Instead, they must pray for grace to remain kind. I mean, when you think about it, being busy, having a to-do list constantly, and being under pressure and being kind, they're, they're, they're totally the opposite. They're diametrically opposed. But Paul says there, I want you to do both. So look at the list here. Submission, love, sensibility, purity, a worker at home, kindness. See, those are the six duties and delights of a godly wife. At the end of verse 5, lest you think that the only reason you do that is so you have a better marriage, you've missed the whole point. Because what's he say? Why, why, are you, why should you be motivated, ladies, to do this? He says at the end of verse 5 there, that the word of God may not be reviled or be blasphemed, literally is what it means. See, it's not about you. Your marriage is not about you. It's not about making you happy and having a happier married marriage. It's about God. It's about your marriage reflecting the very glory of God. And if you live selfishly to get what you want out of your marriage by doing things that you want to do, then you've missed the whole point. Marriage is all about the Lord. It's not about us. So some practical ways here. First of all, to the older women, I'll just say this, those of you over 60, who are you training? Who are you teaching? Who have you called alongside of you to say, hey, you know what? Is there anything I can do for you as a young wife? I want to help you out. That's what it means to be part of their lives. And so, older women, who are you discipling in this way? Who are you training up? What about the younger women? Well, a couple things. First of all, you have to have the humility to understand that you need to be taught some things. You have to have that humility. You have to be teachable. You have to be willing to accept that older women's advice to come alongside you and to help you teach your children, your daughters, your sons this So think about that. Older women, who are you training up? And younger women, are you being trained up? Are you willing to be taught? This will lead to a marriage that honors and glorifies the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I know that some of these things are hard for us to deal with. They're not easy, but your word is very clear. And I think that a lot of this stuff is totally foreign and contrary to the culture in which we live. But Lord, that's why we're called a peculiar people. Lord, I pray for the women in our church. I pray for the wives, the families that are represented here. I pray that they would embrace these things as a goal and pursuit of their lives. And Lord, it doesn't mean that women can't work outside the home. It just means that their focus should be on their home. For those that do work outside the home, it's, it's going to be a lot more difficult for them to fulfill some of these things as you've instructed them to. But by your grace, they're able to do that. And so, Lord, we just pray that your grace, your word would be sufficient. I pray that this life would be attractive to them because in the end, it will glorify Christ. And when Christ is glorified, it will make him an attraction to others. And so, Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would dismiss us 
with your blessing and with a song. And Lord, we also pray for our time across the way as we share a meal together that you would just bless our fellowship as well. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, 